Welcome, and thank you for listening to Grace Heritage Church Audio, building a household of faith on a foundation of grace. Visit us online at graceheritage.org. Please stay tuned after the message for more information. If you were not here last week, I have some outlines from last week. And uh, since, Henry, you raised your hand first, I'm going to let you be the one to distribute the rest of them. Um, The main thing of that outline, you can kind of get a quick overview or review or whatever, but also there's this nifty diagram on the back that um, I'm going to refer to again and again. So um, that may be helpful to you. Um, I also need to make another announcement, and that is the, the Grace Heritage on Campus organization, which is basically just Grace Heritage students, and they're officially recognized as a campus organization, so that gives us a a foot in the door and opportunities for um, reserving rooms and things like that on campus. Um, uh, We're going to be planning, doing some planning, or they're going to be doing some planning um, this afternoon, and so you are invited to our home for lunch today and to participate in uh, discussing and brainstorming and so forth together on how um, our students can reach out to the campus and also how to, to encourage one another. So uh, I encourage you to join us for that. And if you need to, um, if you don't know how to get to our house, then just latch on to somebody that does. Um, Adam does. I think Jonathan does. Um, maybe a few other people. So, all right. Um, I'm hoping that the five minutes of announcements gives me permission to go five minutes over because otherwise we're going to be in a world of hurt. Okay. All right, let's pray. Our Father in heaven, we do thank you for the privilege of uh, studying your word together. And I ask, Father, that as we do that and as we wrestle with a, a topic that, that can be complex, uh, that you would grant us uh, energy and attention to the the testimony of scripture and that we would be able to put these things together in our hearts and minds so that we can more clearly see uh, what you've done in the history of redemption to save your people and what you're doing right now in this in this age and also help us to understand better how to to read and understand the scriptures and we pray this in Christ's name amen so last week we began a, a study of what we're calling Baptist Covenant Theology. Um, in very short summary, Baptist Covenant Theology teaches that God has revealed his dealings with mankind in terms of covenants. Adam broke God's covenant of life or the covenant of works in the garden. And from that point, God has revealed his grace through a series of covenants which culminate in the new covenant that is made with all of God's chosen people. And so I have a diagram that kind of shows the basics of, well, I thought I had a diagram. Yeah, let me go. Um, But let me just remind you of a definition of a biblical covenant. We said that a biblical covenant is a relational arrangement initiated by God's sovereign dispensing of its kindness, goodness, and wisdom toward man. And so there there are four things that um, typically are going to show up in in a covenant, a biblical covenant that we're speaking of here. First of all, it's a relational arrangement. It brings the parties into relationship in a specific way. Uh, Second of all, it's initiated by God. This is not like a a, um, a, a treaty or a compact where two parties get across the table and they they, uh, argue and and negotiate until they get to mutually acceptable 
conditions. This is something that God initiates, God uh, uh, proposes, and he does so for our good. His, God demonstrates his goodness and his wisdom in initiating these covenants. And then sometimes the covenants have conditions, and that's part of the relational arrangement. Sometimes that they are not conditional because they simply uh, announce what God is going to do. In a sense, he has conditions, but we don't in some cases. All right, so those are the basics of a covenant. And here is a, a, a simple structure showing um, what I, I, another qualifier would be confessional Baptist covenant theology because this is reflected in our confession of faith in the 1689 uh, London Baptist Confession. So um, I'm not going to go through the details of that uh, at this point, but um, last time I just argued that, that uh, Scripture sees the, the history of redemption primarily in terms of Old Covenant and New Covenant. And in fact, even our, our Bible is structured that way in terms of Old Testament, New Testament. Testament is just, a, in a sense, a synonym for covenant. And... Um, and, and but what we're going to look at today is this thing that I stuck in sideways, the covenant of works, which is before there was sin entered into the world, um, there was a relational arrangement between God and Adam um, that's very, very important really for understanding the rest of it. So we're going to focus in on that part of it today. Okay, so um, let me just remind you of some of the things that are Important about this study, first of all, it impacts our understanding of the gospel. Very important to understand. You'll see this today, I hope, illustrated very well in understanding that the covenant of works very much impacts our understanding of um, the new covenant and what Christ has done. Um, it also under, uh, impacts our understanding of the law. That is, what is it that God requires of us today in the present age? Um, it also displays God's goodness. It displays God's goodness in entering into relationship with people, which is something that, that is a, uh, a privilege in itself, simply to be in relationship with our Creator, with the God of the universe, the infinitely holy, glorious, and wise God, and to, um, to, to enjoy that, that relationship. Um, it impacts our understanding of the church the nature of the church and the definition of the church. And it impacts our interpretation of Scripture, particularly the Old Testament and how we understand the relationship between the Old and the New Testament. I think uh, it's very important for us to be able to read the Old Testament and, and profit from it and do it in a way that's, that's appropriate to where we are in redemptive history. It helps us understand the flow of Scripture as well as prophecy. So what we're going to focus in to, on today is what we might call getting the garden right, understanding what was going on in the garden with Adam. And so we're going to call this thing uh, the covenant of works. And I'm gonna, uh, we're going to unfold what was actually going on, and then I'm going to come back to that term and try to justify why we would use that term. But I just want to say up front where we're going. The covenant of works defined, um, is that covenant imposed upon Adam by God, who was a representative of mankind, or we can say that he was what we call a public person. That does not mean he was a celebrity, okay? 
Public means that his place was in relation, that he had an impact on and a relationship to the people at large. Okay? He was public in the sense of the way um, the governor is a public person or something like that. He, he represented the people. He was put in place to be not simply his own private individual person, but to do something for the sake of others. So let me just go back and say the covenant of works is that covenant imposed upon Adam, who was a representative of mankind or a public person, with a reward conditioned upon his obedience and a penalty for his disobedience for the bettering of man's state. Okay. Now, let me mention uh, uh, some things that others have said about this. The Dutch Reformed theologian Brackel, in his discussion about the covenant of work, said, Acquaintance with this covenant is of the greatest importance for whoever errs here or denies the existence of the covenant of works will not understand the covenant of grace and will readily err concerning the mediatorship of the Lord Jesus. Such a person will very readily deny that Christ, by his active obedience, has merited a right to eternal life for the elect. Nehemiah Cox, who I have, think I quoted last time and mentioned that he was uh, probably the, the key editor of our Confession of Faith and wrote a very important work on uh, the covenants. Uh, when he was discussing this covenant, said, If a man misses the right account of this, he is certainly bewildered in all further searching for that truth which most concerns him to know. So I would think that ought to give us a little bit of a wake-up call. If you're not familiar with this, you need to be. Uh, this is important. This is foundational to our theology. So what happened in the garden? If you would, turn with me to Genesis chapter 2. Genesis chapter 2, and we're just going to um, focus on a couple of verses there and then kind of talk about the rest of it, hopefully from just general familiarity without having to read a whole lot of passages. Genesis chapter 2, verse 16 says, And the Lord commanded the man, saying, You may surely eat of every tree of the garden, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat. For in the day that you eat of it, you shall surely die. Okay? So let's try to, to understand that. I've got a series of questions here, and I put those on the outline. What was Adam's condition at creation? What was his state? He was sinless, okay? Any other words come to mind? Innocent, okay, right? How do you know that? How do we know that he was sinless and innocent? Okay, he was naked, yeah, that's true, because he had to put on clothes after that. He was made in God's image, right, okay. Anything else? Okay, exactly, when, the, when God was done making... Uh, Adam, or making Adam and Eve, he said that the creation was, uh, he had said it was good, and then he said it was very good once he had made man. Okay, anything else? I think that probably covers it. So Adam was uh, created good and upright, innocent, sinless. Okay, so then what special rule did God give Adam? This is easy. Okay, so there was a specific tree that he was not to eat from, right? All the other trees were fair game, but that one tree was not, okay?
Okay? Um, and also, I think we ought to remember that when we, if we think in terms of, you know, spend a lot of time thinking, why would God say don't eat from this tree? But do remember that he made a lot of trees and said, all of these are for you. I mean, that's God's goodness right there, isn't it? Instead of thinking, why didn't God allow him to eat that tree? We should praise God for his goodness in making all those trees that he was to, uh, allowed to eat from. Okay, so... One of the things you'll notice about this command, though, is it was not a, what we would call a, a moral command, but it was a positive law. That was on your little definitions in the thing I handed out last time. That is, it was not built into Adam's conscience to know that. There was nothing inherent about his creation that would have said, that is wrong. And in fact, there was nothing in God's character that would have said that was wrong. Okay? It was not like... Uh, committing adultery or murder or something like that. Murder would have been directly against who God made Adam to be because he was made in God's image. So to murder someone else would be to attack God in a sense. But this was not like that. It was a temporary regulation based on nothing but God's authority and his revelation to Adam. Adam would, have, would not have known about it had God not uh, revealed it to him and God simply chose uh, for his own wise and uh, inscrutable purposes to, to make that a particular rule for Adam. Okay, so what was the penalty for disobedience? Death, right? Adam would die. And we could spend a lot of time unpacking what that would mean, but um, I want to just leave it at that for, for now. We'll kind of get a little more light on that as we go along. Now here's a little bit more difficult question. Was there a reward for obedience? Okay, well, yeah, I mean, obviously, if he didn't disobey, he wouldn't die. So <laughs> we got that one, right? Um, okay, so we have, I think, at least some hints that there was actually a reward for obedience. It was not just avoiding death that was, and that he, everything would stay the same, but he would just avoid death if he avoided that tree. But I think there's some hints in here and elsewhere that... Um, that there was actually a reward for obedience. And I will say that this is not as clear uh, in the context of Genesis, and yet I do think that it's at least uh, hinted at here and made more clear in other places. Um, I believe that he was to be rewarded with what Scripture calls life. Now, he was alive at that point, okay? But there's something more to be gained by obedience, something that Scripture calls life because... There is another tree in the garden called the tree of life. And if you look in um, Genesis 3, look over down in verses 22 and 23. The tree of life was there and it was one of those trees that, that was uh, available for him to eat from at some point. But apparently the eating of that tree would have allowed him to live forever. Okay. So something would be different at that point that was not the same as just avoiding eating from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Just eating from the knowledge of, tree of, of the tree of good and evil, uh, uh, tree of the knowledge of good and evil, would not have a, uh, changed his state at all. But something about eating from that tree would have actually changed his state. Something would have been different for him. 
And because he had fallen, he was no longer allowed to do that. He was barred from eating from that tree. Okay? So he couldn't attain this life, this living forever, which was something apparently different from just going on in the condition that he was in. Okay, so that's one way that I think we see that hinted at, at least in the context. But we have more light shed for us in other passages. Um, we see in the New Testament very clearly a parallel made between Adam and Christ. A couple of important passages are Romans 5 and 1 Corinthians 15. Um, there's a parallel between Adam and Christ that shows us that the reward for obedience was a higher and more glorious life than he possessed at that time. Okay? He was actually uh, going to be rewarded with a, with a type of life that I, th I believe is the same life that Christ purchased for us, that Christ won for us by his obedience, and that's a life that Scripture calls glorification. Okay? Christ won this for us because Adam failed to. See, there's a parallel between Adam and Christ. And Christ was doing what Adam should have done, but didn't do. And so we see what Christ did do, and we can learn then what Adam should have done, but failed to do. We get more light on it in the New Testament. Um, I don't know if you've thought too much about this. Romans 3.23 says, All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Now, I've always heard that passage used as one of those passages when you teach the Romans road, a kind of brief way of presenting the gospel, and you say, okay, and the, the emphasis, on, emphasis is on the first part of the verse, which says, all have sinned. Everybody's a sinner. But don't miss the second part of that. All have fallen short of the glory of God. What does that mean? Well, I think what that's saying is that by sinning, Adam, and by implication, everyone else, did not attain to this glory that was intended for him, that was held out to him. See, it just in, in lots of little ways, we see this sort of woven into the thought of the Bible, and particularly the New Testament. It was God's intention from the very beginning to bless his creatures with glory, not just ongoing life as it was, but something beyond that. Um, glorification. If sin had not entered the world, then that would have been the case. Adam fell short of something that he didn't possess yet. And I think most of us tend to think of it, and I've tended to think of it, as Adam just fell from the condition that he was in. But not just that, he failed to attain something that he didn't have yet. So it kind of was going to go, could go both ways, in a sense. Now we also need to admit that Scripture is relatively quiet about this, particularly concerning Adam. But I think that that kind of makes sense because, you know, once Adam sinned, there's really no point in talking about it too much other than once Christ uh, comes on the scene and, and reveals to us what he's purchasing for us. So um, scripture just doesn't say a whole lot about this because that was not the route that Adam took. So we understand that Adam was upright when he was created, but obviously Adam was still capable of sinning, wasn't he? Now, we know that when we get to heaven, there's no chance at all that we're going to be kicked out of heaven because we slipped up one day and sinned. In fact, in Revelation, it talks about the tree of life being there and trees in the garden and so forth. Um, you know, the, if, if we think that we're going to enter 
the new heavens and the new earth still capable of sinning. Maybe we'll eat the wrong fruit too. Okay? Something is different from Adam's state when he was created to the state that we'll attain when we're glorified. It's different. Okay? And, and to think that God would have allowed Adam to go on forever in a condition where he, he might have fallen at any moment does not express so much the goodness of God as does the idea that God was, was giving him an opportunity to demonstrate obedience um, when he could fall and then would have confirmed him in that righteousness so that he would no longer ever be uh, subject to falling again. So um, Adam was still upright but still capable of sinning. His obedience would have been rewarded with glorification, um, a more glorious state of life in which he would have been confirmed in righteousness and no longer capable of sinning. So I would say that, you know, a lot of times we think about the garden and we think what an incredible place that must have been, what an incredible life to live in a place at the time and when there was no suffering and no sin and so forth. Um, and, and yeah, that sounds good, but really we don't want to get back to the garden as it was when Adam was created. We want to go beyond the garden because that's what God has made for us. God has made us for glory, a glory that Adam wasn't created with but only would have attained um, upon obedience. And so Christ takes us not back to the garden. Christ takes us beyond the garden. Okay, so again, you see how this highlights the work of Christ for us when we start thinking about what was going on there? Christ takes us beyond that. Okay, so another question is, did Adam and Eve act for themselves alone? Or is there some evidence that they were acting in a representative capacity? Can you see any th evidence in the, in the passage itself that they were acting in a representative capacity? Okay. What does his name mean, Brandon? It means man. Um, I, I discovered, and I guess I hadn't really thought about it too much. Maybe I hadn't or forgot it. But thankfully, in the New Testament, there's a different word for Adam and man. So you can talk about one and be clear which one you're talking about. But in the Old Testament, Adam just means man. So his very name seems to imply a kind of representative uh, uh, role for him. Okay? Anything else? I think... Go ahead. First and the what? He's the first man. Okay. Yes. Right. He certainly was the first man, and he was the father biologically of every uh, human being because of that. So that certainly underscores his his unique role. Um, I was thinking also the fact that his marriage to Eve has defining uh, value to it. It wasn't just, okay, here's a story about how the first man got married. This is a, in, in God conducting their marriage, he defines marriage in that context. It's a, it defines it for all of humanity. Okay? Notice also, though, even in the context, we see that the penalty upon Adam and Eve is universal. They're not the only ones who are subject to the penalty. All of their posterity are subject to the penalty. Um, first of all, you might miss this, but just remember, how many, how many of you were born in the Garden of Eden? 
under those conditions. I wasn't. I'd never heard of anybody being born like that. The, the, the opportunity that was given to Adam is removed. We don't have it anymore. And it's because he acted in a capacity representing, representing us so that that opportunity is gone. Uh, second of all, we notice that all women experience pain in childbearing, right? That's not, uh, that wasn't just for Eve. That was for all women from then on. And also, everyone suffers difficulty and frustration and a lack of fruit in their labor. So again, that's a universal penalty that we see. But we see this even more clearly in the New Testament. The parallel between Adam and Christ shows us that Adam acted as a representative. Um, 1 Corinthians 15.22 says, For as in Adam all die, so also in Christ shall all be made alive. Okay? All died in Adam. There was something about what Adam did that caused all to die, just as when something that Christ did that caused all of his people to be made alive. Um, then we see in Romans 5.18, same thing. Therefore, as one trespass led to condemnation for all men, so one act of righteousness leads to justification and life for all men. For as by the one man's disobedience the many were made sinners, so by the one man's obedience the many will be made righteous. So we see that much more clearly underscored in the New Testament that there is a, there's a uh, similarity in the role of Adam and Christ. And we understand that Christ was a representative for his people. He was a substitute. He died for his people. And we also believe he lived for his people. Um, Adam was playing the same role for all humanity. Um, okay, so... Next question is, how are Adam and Christ parallel exactly? And we see this in, in a couple of passages. Uh, 1 Corinthians, if you would, turn, turn to Romans 5. Okay, we're going to spend a few minutes in that. But let me just read to you 1 Corinthians 15, verses, verse 45. It spells this out exactly. In fact, it calls Christ Adam. The parallel is so exact that it calls Christ Adam. It says, Thus it is written, The first man, Adam, became a living being. The last, Adam, became a life-giving spirit. So it, it assigns the name Adam to Jesus in what he did. They played a, a, a similar role in uh, being representatives and in being tested you might say, in terms of their obedience. Romans 5 actually sets up an extended parallel. And um, just given the time, we don't have time to uh, dig into all of that and everything that that means and everything it implies. But I do want you to, to see the parallel pretty closely. And so we're going to spend a little bit of time here. Um, here's the idea. Adam failed to obey and he brought the curse upon himself and all those he represented by his disobedience. Christ took upon himself the curse, okay? He took upon himself the curse and he paid the penalty of the curse. He exhausted the penalty. He exhausted the curse. But not only that, 
That's like, let me say, I'm trying to distinguish between we all experience the curse, but we don't exhaust it. It keeps going and going and going. But Christ exhausted the curse. Everything that was due to that curse, Christ paid. Okay? So Christ took upon himself and paid it. Not only that, but he obeyed exactly where Adam had not obeyed, and he won the reward of life for all those he represented. Okay, so that's the basic parallel that we see. And if you would, look in, in Romans 5, and I've already read verses 18 and 19. Let's just go back and look at, at verses uh, 16. In fact, let me go back to verse 15 and uh, start there. And, it, and the passage actually starts in verse 12. So I'm not going to start with verse 12. Um, it really gets into it more uh, in a nice kind of back and forth way in verse 15. But the free gift is not like the trespass. For if many died through one man's trespass, that's Adam, much more have the grace of God and the free gift by the grace of that one man, Jesus Christ, abounded for many. And the free gift is not like the result of that one man's sin. For the judgment following one trespass brought condemnation. But the free gift following many trespasses brought justification. For if because of one man's uh, trespass death reigned through that one man, much more will those who receive the abundance of grace and the free gift of righteousness reign in life through the one man, Jesus Christ." And again, we've already read verses 18 and 19, so I'm going to stop there. But what we see is we see kind of a compare and contrast set up. There are differences between Adam and Christ, but the main differences that are highlighted is, is the difference in the fact that Adam failed and Christ was successful in what he came to do. It's not that they had a different role, so to speak, um, but, but Adam failed and Christ was successful. Um, and there's another difference in that that um, Adam um, caused the, the, uh, the curse to come, and Christ removed the curse. Okay? But Christ didn't simply remove the curse. He didn't simply put us back in the garden. And this is what's so important. He went beyond that. He obeyed perfectly. He, he didn't just uh, exhaust the penalty that clean up Adam's mess, so to speak. But he went on and perfectly obeyed God's law in, in exactly the way that Adam didn't do and therefore won life for his people. Okay, so let's see the parallel here laid out. And I think I have that on your notes. But we here see in verse 15. On the left, Adam. On the right, Christ, the last Adam. So he says that one man's sin brought the death of many. But Christ's work, one man's grace or gift, came to the many. In verse 16, one sin led to many being judged, which led to condemnation. Christ, uh, one man's, uh, let's see, uh, one man's sin led to Christ's one gift, which led to a justification for many. In verse 17, one sin leads to the reign of death. In Christ's work, his gift leads to reigning in life. Verse 18, one sin leads to condemnation to all. In Christ, one act of righteousness, and by the way, um, I think the, 
the, the language here is to try to, to emphasize the parallels between them. But Christ's act of righteousness was not simply a moment of obedience, but an entire life. His act of righteousness was his life of obedience. Okay, so it's not, even though it might sound at a, on the surface like it's just talking about one thing, it's more than that. It's his whole life, which was his act of righteousness. One act of righteousness which brought justification to all. And notice I have a little asterisk here because we're not going the route of saying that Scripture teaches universalism here. That when condemnation came to all, it was all who were represented by Adam, which is all humanity. But ultimately, when it says all for Christ, it's not all people, but it's all that he represented. It's all who were found in him, all who, who are united to him. So the, the all there is a different all. It's all, all of those that were, that, uh, were in view there, but it's not the same all. Okay, so in verse 19, one sin is, uh, leads to many sinners. And in Christ's work, one obedient, his one obedience leads to many made righteous. So we see lots of parallels there and contrasts. Sorry to interrupt so late, but are we supposed to have that on the notes that we have? You're supposed to if my uh, servants were... Yeah, okay. Might be helpful if I pass that out, right? I don't know. What? Oh, so some of, them, some of you have this. It says covenant of works on there? Okay. Daniel, could you see that everyone who doesn't have one has one? All right. Yeah. Here? Oh, 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 yeah, yeah. Yeah, that's right. Um, I won't develop that one any further, though. Okay, so what I, what I want to, one of the things I want to say here is that on the surface, you might think there's an analogy between Adam and Christ. But part of what I'm trying to say here is that there's more than simply an analogy. There, there's actually an identity. I mean, there, there's, a, there's, a, there's a sameness of role to them. Now, Christ did more than Adam did because of the fact that he bore the penalty and exhausted the penalty. But then he goes back and he does what Adam failed to do, literally, in his life. Okay? So, so it's more than simply an analogy between the two. Um, Christ takes up the role of Adam, and he fulfills the role He's the better Adam. In fact, I noticed that we sang about that this morning. Y'all notice that? Uh, he, uh, Christ is the better Adam who fulfilled what Adam failed to do. So it's really important to see this because our view of Adam and our view of Christ are closely connected. I was listening to a sermon by Carl Truman and he was saying that if you tell me what your view of Adam is, I can have a pretty good idea of what your view of Christ and his work is. And if you tell me what your view of Christ and his work is, I can give you a pretty good idea of your view of Adam. These things go together and they support each other and they 
they uh, shed light on one another. So it's very important in that sense. Okay, so the, the um, next question is, was this actually a covenant? Was this a covenant? Um, and of course, I'm going to answer yes, that it was. Um, it is traditionally called the covenant of works, but it is sometimes called the covenant of life. There have been different names for it. Uh, the covenant of obedience. The covenant of creation. All of those uh, pick, up up, pick up on an aspect of it and say essentially the same thing. Um, so I'm just calling it covenant of works because that's probably the most common name for it. Now I want to talk about a few objections briefly uh, to, to this. One, it, I'll just say it has become fashionable these days to question the existence of the covenant of works in the garden, um, even though this is what is taught in all the major English Protestant confessions. Um, I would say that um, people who question it, um, it's a bit, a bit frustrating sometimes to see people that, that ought to understand this and know, and know better and have more respect for, for the, the uh, gift that God has given to the church in elders who've hammered out these teachings over the centuries and, um, and not to just run off with, hey, I think it means this or something. And, and um, because it does create confusion, I think, and ultimately it undermines the work of Christ. Um, now, we need to acknowledge that the term covenant is not found anywhere in the Genesis account. Even if you're a Hebrew expert, you won't find it. At least that's what Hebrew experts tell me. I'm not one, so I can't uh, uh, say that from personal observation. Um, and some people take that as enough reason to reject the concept. But the first thing that's going to come to everyone's mind here, I think, is what doctrine do we speak of the most that where the word isn't in the Bible? Trinity. Are we going to reject the doctrine of the Trinity simply because the word isn't there? No. The concept is there. We've come up with a word to just try to put a little package on it so that we can talk about it without saying a huge long paragraph of what we mean. We want to give a little handle to it. So likewise, we can talk about a concept of the covenant of works without it necessarily actually being said explicitly in there. Okay? Um, so just as another example, Moses doesn't tell us in Genesis that Adam is a type of Christ. We have to get all the way over into Romans 5 to find that out. But that doesn't mean that Adam, I mean, that, yeah, Adam suddenly became a type of Christ when Paul wrote Romans 5, does it? He had always been a type of Christ, even when Genesis was written. And so there must be something implicit in Genesis about his being a, a type of Christ. Um, it's, not, uh, it's not a brand new thing. And it comes out somewhere else. So just because it's not the word type is not used in, in Genesis for Adam doesn't mean Adam is not a type of Christ. So we use other concepts in um, Genesis that aren't explicitly named with the word. Now, some people react to the term works. Because as good Protestants, we know that we're not saved by works. So anytime you hear the word works, you go, ah, no, works are bad. Okay, and I think there's something at a, very, at a gut level that works against this term simply because we hear the word works and we go, oh, no, no, I don't like works. And, and so uh, that's good to have that instinct not to 
think of works as something you, you uh, are going to barter with God about. But works is just another word for obedience. And there's certainly obedience required here, right? And there's certainly a penalty for disobedience. So I don't see a problem with the word works. Um, in fact, Romans 5, as we've laid it out, has many, many contrasts between obedience and disobedience, between the gift and the, uh, and the disobedience. So um, it, the, a failure to obey is very clearly the issue in Genesis uh, chapter 3. Now, some people react to the fact that there's a legal arrangement um, and would say, um, for example, that um, one of our friends, theological friends, says it is customary among some theologians to give the erroneous impression that God wanted Adam and Eve to relate to him in terms of meritorious works rather than childlike faith. But the thing is, a father can set up expectations for his son that don't violate the relationship. If I say, Wilson, I want you to cut the grass, I'm going to pay you to cut the grass, but if you don't cut the grass, you're going to be punished for it. That doesn't somehow make me a, a judge. And he goes, you're not my father, uh, you know, because I said cut the grass and you're going to get rewarded if you do it or, or uh, disciplined if you don't. Uh, that is part of a, that relationship is to set up those kinds of arrangements. Okay, That's a, It's not a contradiction of that r arrangement. Uh, second of all, it, it, um, people object because it seems in some people's mind that, that by making such an arrangement that that meant that Adam could somehow put God in his debt. Because after all, what, how could a creature earn such an incredible thing as glorification? Well, that's true. Adam couldn't earn that. He couldn't deserve that. He never could deserve that. Not in an infinity of, of obedience, infin infinitely long obedience. But um, that doesn't mean that God cannot make an arrangement like that. So again, if I told Wilson that I would give him $100 if he'd cut the grass, and, and I told him, and we're, still, we're learning about cutting the grass right now, so um, if I told him, I'll give you $100 if you cut the grass, but when you do that, it can't have any little tiny rows of missed grass striping the, the, the um, lawn, okay? And if he did that, I mean, that would be an act of generosity on my part, wouldn't it? He'd be glad to enter into an arrangement like that with me. Um, if he does it, I'd pay him. But it wasn't because he had somehow earned it or that he was, uh, I was in his debt. It would simply be because as a father, I gladly entered into that arrangement voluntarily. The, um, the confession uses the term voluntary condescension. It says that though rational creatures are responsible to obey God as their creature, the distance between God and these creatures is so great that they could never have attained the reward of life, not the thing that he earned, but the reward of life, except by God's voluntary condescension. He has been pleased to express this through a covenant framework. So there's nothing wrong with such an agreement and it doesn't violate the, the nature of the relationship as father-son or as the infinite creator to the finite creature. And then ultimately, it has all the elements of a covenant. If we look at, at just ask ourselves about the elements of a covenant that we talked about before, um, is it a relational arrangement? Yes, it is a relational arrangement. God could have just remained silent 
in all of his dealings um, uh, as a creator. And Adam could have just discovered the garden and figured things out on his own. But no, God came near, made an arrangement uh, with Adam. Was it initiated by God? Yes, it was. It was initiated by God. Adam didn't say, hey, God, I've got this great idea. Let's make a deal. It was God. It was for his good. And this is part of why I want you to understand that there was a reward for obedience here. Because it wasn't simply that God put something in his way to trip him up. Okay? It really was intended for his good and for our good. Now, in God's, God's sovereignty and his uh, decree and all that, we get into his uh, sovereign plan and all that, that, it was not his purpose that it go that way, and that opens up a whole different thing that we would have to wrestle with, but, but we do know that God was doing this for his good, and there was a, a life offered upon obedience. And then there were conditions. And the conditions were that there was an obedience with, um, to, to, he had to obey, and there was a curse attached to disobedience. So it has all the elements of a covenant, so why not call it a covenant if it, ha if it has all the elements of a covenant? Okay? So let me just quickly leave you with a few parting thoughts to chew on. How can we apply this? Um, let me give you three quick things. First of all, it removes all hope of attaining life by works. I hope you can see the, how powerfully it, it demonstrates this. Because if Adam was unable to attain life by works in the perfect situation of the garden, without all the, the pain and suffering and uh, internal corruption that we uh, wrestle with, then what makes us think we could? Okay? Second of all, though, that way is forever shut and barred. Adam was cast out of the garden. The only way we could ever go back and do this again is to go back to the garden and confront the same situation. But we've been forever barred from the garden. So if you have any thought that somehow your obedience is going to somehow earn your salvation or earn your standing with God, then look at the covenant of works and learn that that's never going to happen. There has to be another way. And that way, of course, is Christ. We need another representative, a better Adam. Okay? Um, thinking about, uh, second of all, thinking of the work and failure of Adam clarifies the work of Christ. And I, I think we, we've already seen some of that as we've gone through this. Christ took the penalty for Adam's failure and exhausted it. But second of all, Christ did more than that. He obtained the reward of life for his people by his obedience to God and fulfilling the covenant of works on our behalf. Okay? So thinking of the work and failure of Adam clarifies the work of Christ. And then the third thing is a reminder that, that our sin is ultimately against God. It's not about uh, doing things that make us uncomfortable ultimately or, or, or about things that offend other people uh, or, or you know, make it life difficult for other people and all that. And, and those are horrible things. We do sin grievously against one another. But ultimately, the thing that changes history, the thing that brings down the condemnation of God is that it's against him. And that's what Adam did. It was against him. So I hope that uh, this uh, thinking about the covenant of works will help you as you think about Christ and what he has done and is doing in your life.
Okay. Let's close, and I'll be glad to hang around for a few minutes to ask, answer questions, and I'll bet we can do some of that this evening too. Right? Okay. Father in heaven, we thank you for uh, your word, and we thank you for the amazing way that you have woven this, this reality together and also the revelation of it so that it clarifies the work of Christ for us. <clears throat> so, Father, I ask that you would help us to be clearer on that, and that we would understand uh, that Christ is our only hope and our only way. And what a, what a tremendous source of joy to think that, there, that the way has been barred for us to do what Adam did, and yet Christ has done it for us. Praise the Lord. Amen. Thank you for listening. Grace Heritage Church meets in Auburn, Alabama. Services are held at 9.30 a.m. on Sunday morning at 1345 Antelou Drive.